0: If there was a relatively simple method for extending the range, increasing the payload, and lengthening the endurance of combat aircraft, don't you think military planners would be interested in it? You bet they would. And it turns out there is such a method. It's called aerial refueling from a big-wing tanker like the KC-135 Stratotanker or forthcoming KC-46 Pegasus. In-flight refueling began as a barnstorming trick a century ago but is now a vital element of global military air operations. And who better to discuss the history practical applications and strategic implications of aerial refueling than the guy who not only wrote the book on big wing tankers, but even helped stand up the U.S. Air Force Tanker Weapons School. It's all coming up this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Alright, did All right,
1: disconnect
2: down to the right.
3: Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 85. We're talking big wing tankers today with retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Mark Hacera. Now, in the last couple episodes, the guest has joined us right away, but today we're back to the old format. We've got some announcements, a couple listener questions, me rambling a little bit, and then we'll get to the interview. Well, I hope everyone's doing well here as we enter summer of this turbulent year of 2020. Man, it's been just crazy. As for me and my household, we're doing pretty well. We've got the boys. We've had a couple trips doing things as the city and state reopen, and so things are going pretty well. My job as an airline pilot, however, is a bit up in the air in the moment, if you'll excuse the pun. you know The demand for air travel has been really hit hard in March and April and May. It's starting to come back, but as of right now, my company says they have more pilots than they need, and so there's a chance I might be furloughed in the fall. But if it comes back as quickly as it looks, eh, maybe that won't be a problem. So anyway... little uncertainty for me, but thankfully I have this podcast and other exciting activities to keep me busy, Uh, including recently I was featured on Vanity Fair. I don't know if you caught that or not. We posted about it on our Facebook page, but they invited me to review some military flying scenes from some popular movies, and they put that on their YouTube channel. It was a lot of fun, actually. We recorded it right there in my house. Part two should be coming out in early July. They actually presented... The posts that I recorded in order different than the way I recorded them. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but overall it was a lot of fun and uh, you'll actually see me and I will announce it, but there's another company that invited me to reflect on some movies. So that seems to be the trend right now. Well, let's see. In other news, this past week was not a particularly good one for U.S. military aircraft. First, an F-15 crashed in the North Sea, taking the life of 1st Lieutenant Kenneth Allen. Naturally, our sincerest condolences go out to the unit, and especially the Allen family. Then a two-seat Super Hornet from the carrier Theodore Roosevelt crashed, but I read the crew was safely recovered, so that's great news. Now, regarding the show, many people commented that they enjoyed the EA episode with Meanie Me a couple shows back. I appreciate the feedback. And a few matters came up regarding the episode 84 on the Mirage 2000 last week. Now, first, some listeners appreciated the intro, but others thought my comments were insensitive. Now, I certainly did not intend to offend anyone. We simply want this show to be a place to enjoy and learn about military aviation. So going forward, we'll just steer clear of anything controversial like this. Enough said. Now, during the armament section of that show on the GBU-49 that I was not immediately familiar with, a listener wrote to say it is essentially a GBU-12, which is a 500-pound class laser-guided weapon, with an inertial GPS kit. And it can be deployed like a JDAM and is useful against moving targets, I'm told. So that's interesting. That wasn't in the inventory when I was in, at least if it was, I didn't know of it. And it probably came as I was busy doing my maintenance check flights on my last tour there. Next, a couple listeners felt Mateo and I did not do justice to the air-to-ground variant, saying the Mirage 2000D and its mission are as different as the Strike Eagle is to the F-15. And each of those had their own episodes, so we'll try to give the air-to-ground version of the Mirage 2000 a little love. And one of the things we learned is that the Mirage 2000D is scheduled for a midlife update that will upgrade its avionics and armament, allowing the D model to carry more weapons and the 1 in 2,000 pound JDAM, some new air-to-air missiles, and, quote, hopefully a new targeting pod, so said the person who sent that. So, yep, we'll see what we can do, maybe circle back on the air-to-ground version of the Mirage 2000. And another listener said that regarding the Taiwanese Mirage 2000s, evidently due to political sensitivities, the aircraft had to be categorized as a defensive weapon. So it did not feature air-to-ground capabilities. It did not feature in-flight refueling capabilities. And apparently they've had a few mishaps, as has any fleet, frankly. But now there is talk that the Mirage 2000 in Taiwan will be replaced soon by the F-16V model, which I'm not immediately familiar with, but I know there are many F-16 variants. In other announcements, our four Facebook groups continue to grow and thrive. If you're interested in military aviation photography, or if you are an aspiring military aviator, we have groups for you, including one just for hopeful military aviators from Australia. So we have a group called The Ready Room, where you can just hang out and discuss recent episodes, current events, air combat in general. All of them have entry questions. We just want to give you a little something to get in the door. So if you skip those, you might not get through the door, but if you can answer those, then you can jump in the fray and get involved with any of the groups or all of the groups if they interest you. All right, why don't we cover a few listener questions? The first is an email from Neil Wheeler that I've had since last October, about eight months ago. Neil, I'm sorry, but I needed help answering this one and it took a little while. Neil asked, could you briefly describe all the VX squadrons by outlining where they are, what they do, what platforms they operate, parentheses, VX-31 has several, including SAR helos, and how a pilot becomes a test pilot? Well, Neil, regarding the second part of your question, I will refer you back to episode 22 with Reki, where we discussed how one becomes a test pilot. But regarding the squadrons, there are several. And we'll break them down, if you will, by developmental test and operational test. Now, developmental test, or DT squadrons, now those squadrons perform air vehicle and stores release testing, and they require qualified test pilots to do that. So these are what you would think of as far as figuring out where aircraft depart, what their roll rate limits should be, what they do in certain situations. And so, yeah, that's where a patch-wearing test pilot graduate will be involved. Now, operational test or OT on the other hand is for fleet representative aviators and flight officers to take the product that has met the design spec at a DT squadron and ensure it is usable by the fleet and is tactically relevant. So let's go through a couple of these. VX-23, that's a DT squadron in Patuxent River, Maryland. They operate all models of the F-A-18 and the E-A-18G, also the F-35C and the A-V-8B Harrier and T-45 Gossok. They do flight envelope, carrier suitability, and stores release testing. Then you have VX-31, which is DT in China Lake, California. They're responsible for the developmental test of weapon systems and software for the Hornet, Super Hornet, and Growler. And yes, there is a SAR Helo detachment there that is responsible for search and rescue for the local training area there in the desert north of Los Angeles. Now you have also in China Lake VX-9 that does operational tests, and they are responsible for the weapon systems and software coming out of VX-31 for the Hornet, Super Hornet, Harrier, and Lightning two and they integrate with Top Gun and VX-31 to bridge the gap between the test community and the fleet. So think of them as the go-between folks. And in fact, the Hornet, I'm told, actually, the OT part of that is over with. It's just the Super Hornet now that is doing the OT. For VX-20 back at PAX River, that's developmental test mainly for big-wing aircraft. Think the P-8 Poseidon, which is a navalized 737. Then you have HX-21. It's developmental test at PAX River. That's for rotary wing. And the newest squadron, I'm told, is UX-24, which is developmental test for unmanned aerial systems. So that's pretty cool. Then you have VX1, which is operational test at Pax River for big wings and helos. And then finally, out at VX30 in Point Magoo, you have OT, but it's mainly range support for Nav Air and Nav Sea testing. So think about the big testing that's going on just off the coast of California, there, north of Los Angeles. All right, I hope that helps. And I certainly learned something too. And again, apologies for it taking so long. I also have a six-month-old email question from Elliot Atkinson, who submits emails quite frequently. He's from the UK, and he asks, how much difference is there from a pilot's point of view between carrier launches using a catapult and launches using a ski jump or flat deck with Stovall aircraft? Remember, that is short takeoff vertical landing. Do you have to think differently about what you're doing with the aircraft, how you operate on the deck. Of course, the Stovall aircraft operate off much smaller decks more often, and I wondered how much that affects the way operations are done. So, Elliot, I hate to take a pass here, but It took me so long because I kept waiting to find someone who's done both, and I I never really found anyone that did. So I'll have to leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. If you recall, way back in the beginning, we had several episodes on carrier operations, and then last year in 2019, we had Magua on to talk about the AV-8B, and we talked about the smaller decks. And I couldn't find anyone either who had done, let's say, Harriers from ski ramps, but also flat decks. I'm sure they're out there. I just never found anyone. So just never had a chance to fully answer that one, Elliot, but great question. All right, two emails. Let's follow it up with two phone calls. The first one is from Evan. Let's give it a listen.
4: Hi, my name is Evan Forte. Uh, I live in California. I want to call and ask you guys for a quick favor. There's a video on YouTube, a nine minute video. It's a recording of the of an uh, incident in Libya where two of our F-14s from our Navy shot down to make an uh, engagement. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to ask if you're willing to review it on an episode. I'm not asking for, like, a full episode, like a, but, like, like, if you could review it, it's a nine-minute video, and just give us your comments on how the pilot reacted in the situation. Was that a part of the... Advanced Weapons Fighter tactics, or was that something that he decided to do? Would it still be the same way, like, the tactics, have they changed, and how do you feel about the engagement? Like, would you have done the same thing, use the same tactics, basically? That's all. Just a quick video. I'm not looking for a full cool episode. If you already have it, please direct me to uh, the episodes, or if not, if you can't direct me. Just say that you have it, and I'll just go diving through it until I find it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So Evan, you kind of put me in a spot here because I think I know which video you're talking about, but just to be sure, if you could email me a link to questions at fighter pilot podcast.com, then I can make sure I'm looking at the right video because there's a couple shoot downs from that era and they have slightly different circumstances as you would expect. And I'd be happy to listen to it if you could send me the link and then reflect on it on a future show, but I don't want to attack the wrong target, so to speak. All right, next, let's take another phone call.
1: Hi, Vincent. My name is Ken McAllister. I'm a paramedic in Santa Clara County. I have two questions for you. Question one, on the B-52 Stratofortress episode, have you never, ever heard of a movie called B-52 Bomber? That's the question. It's a great movie that highlights the B-52 like crazy. Question two Any chance you can do an episode on para rescue? I know it's outside the fighter world, but the 129th here at Moffett Airfield, they do rescues all over the world, as you know, combat SAR, everything. But they also have been going out to the cruise ships and dealing with COVID. So I would be interested in hearing their particular gist on what's going on in the world, and I think it would make an interesting um, episode. Have a great day.
0: No, Ken, I'm sorry to say I've never seen the movie that you're calling B-52. I had to look it up in IMDb, and I found out from 1957 there was a movie called Bombers B-52. I assume you mean that one. I'm really not familiar with it. I'll have to check it out. Secondly, we have had many suggestions for non-military aviation topics, like you suggest. One gentleman recently suggested a show on the space shuttle. And when Australia was burning at the beginning of 2020, as you may recall, we had several requests for shows on aerial firefighting and bomb dropping, if you will, with water. Now, clearly there is overlap with some of these, but, you know, we're trying to stay within our niche. I mean, Right now, we've still got a lot of topics to cover, and so I'm not saying no forever, but we just want to kind of stick within military aviation for the time being. But that being said, we are considering an episode this fall when hurricane season begins in the Northern Hemisphere on the WC-130, because it has the C-130 as its base, of course, but also some of the missions they do is kind of risky, like air combat. So we might feature that one, we're not sure yet, but... That said, kudos to the guys and gals of the 129th and other pararescue organizations. We obviously certainly appreciate everything you do out there. All right, that will do it for listener questions for this week. Thanks, as always, for submitting them and for your patience getting them answered. Let's go to the feature segment now. An extensive discussion on big-wing tankers and strategic aerial refueling. Here we go. All right, this week we are talking big-wing tankers. Now, we have had a show on aerial refueling before, but we're going to follow that up, leverage it. And who better to come on and talk about this than the man who wrote the book on it, retired Lieutenant Colonel Mark Passera, call sign Sluggo. How's it going, Sluggo? I'm doing great, Jello. How are you doing today? Oh, man, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for uh, making this work out last minute. And Yeah, you've been working on me for a while about this. Didn't you uh, reach out a couple months ago? <laughs>
2: yeah, a couple months ago. I think I started last year, but, uh, man, you've had some great podcasts, though, like on the F-117. I will never forget the first time I refueled one of those and air-to-air mission planning and a lot of stuff that I've been involved with, particularly being at Kadena in Okinawa with yeah. three F-15 squadrons, an AWAC squadron, a helicopter squadron. I mean, we well, saw it all over there as, a, as yeah. an air refueling squadron. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you were around for SR-71s, but uh, our guest on that one, Brian Schull, talked about the limitations being the tankers and the different fuels. So I want to get to all of that, dude, but let's start with you. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? What did you do in your military? Anybody in your family military before you? And what are you doing now? So hometown, Los Angeles,
2: born in Inglewood, in California, raised in San Jose. All right. Come from a military family. My father worked in the defense industry for a long time. I used to have missile parts on the kitchen uh, table when I was a kid. Um, Who didn't, right? Yeah, who didn't, right? My grandfather flew in uh, World War II, flew P-51s in World War II. And my uncle, Bob Jeffrey, was an F-102 pilot and spent seven years in the Hanoi Hilton. Got shot down four days before Christmas in 1965 on his very first combat mission. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, Went to Brigham Young University during the golden age of sports. Danny Ainge was playing basketball. Jim McMahon was the quarterback, and Steve Young was the backup. Wow. Uh, Great years (laughs) for college sports when I was going to BYU. And then uh, always wanted to go into the air force and fly my love for flying started on the hood of my grandfather's Chevy Chevelle on aviation Boulevard at the end of the runways of Los Angeles international airport Uh watching the very first DC eights 707s Lockheed constellations Lockheed electras Vickers Viscounts coming in as a kid. And I said, why work for a living when I can do this?
0: (laughs) Shh, don't tell anyone i know i know don't <laughs> let that secret out <laughs>
2: that's right <laughs> really wanted to fly 707s when i first saw them you know as you go through pilot training everybody comes into pilot training want to be a fighter pilot i did not have a lot of flying experience before i got there so i was kind of at the end of the pack and ended up flying 707s kc135s absolutely loved the refueling mission in the kc135 Mm -hmm. I look back at my time in the KC-135, and I've shown you some of the pictures, too. I always had my camera with me. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the mission. It was just a lot of fun. And I got to see a lot of air refueling history, going from Strategic Air Command, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, being on alert with six nuclear-armed FB-111s loaded with two and a half megatons of thermonuclear attitude adjustment, as we called it, And five tankers next to them just waiting for the Klaxon to go off. And um retired in September of two thousand seven from active duty as a lieutenant colonel. Went to work for Rockwell Collins, now Collins Aerospace, designing cockpits for airplanes.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Went as far in engineering as my political science degree would allow. <laughs> And um, But really learned a lot about systems engineering. Mm-hmm. And I was leading a team of 12 systems engineers with my poli sci degree and just had a blast doing that. And it was fun to see what was in the guts of the multifunction display and mm-hmm. later on doing services for the parts and stuff like that. a matter of fact, our biggest contract was the HUDs for F 18s. Oh, nice. Out of uh, Coronado. I've looked through those just a bit. You've done that a bit, I'm sure. And then we have the displays in the F 18 too.
5: Yes.
2: And now I'm in Utah, just literally moved like two weeks ago into a new place. And I speak professionally. I'm going to write some more books. And I'm starting a new company called Wall Pilot that does vinyl prints for the walls of your home or office that you can peel off and stick on your walls, kind of like uh, fatheads. No kidding. But they're really detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Hey,
0: we'll have to talk because I think my audience would love something like that. So when it's ready to go, you let me know. We'll get some folks headed your way.
2: Oh, we're doing it already, but we don't have F-14s or F-18s yet because they're really detailed. They'll have every rivet. They even have the stenciling on the sidewinders with the arming key on the missiles. Okay. I mean, they're (laughs) really detailed, but the thing about it is we can customize them. So, we can do your squadron, Jello, with your name on it, your bureau number, and whatever weapons load you want on it, too. You know, about an hour, hour and a half. And wow. we have a printer that we send them off to, and they ship them out. And you can peel them off and put them on your wall, or some people just frame it as it is and, and put it up. And uh,
0: That's cool. At the end of the interview, we'll get uh, some information on where people can find you and the various things you're doing. So uh, make sure you don't let me forget that. All right. And I think it's worth saying that you have had two appearances on air crew interview with our friend, Mike, as have I actually. Yes. And so people who want to get a lot more detail, I think it was about an hour each, as I saw, Mm -hmm. who want to check that out, they can. We're going to hit some of the high points of all that today. And again, this is actually arguably the first episode that we've had where we've kind of circled back and talked about something we've already talked about, but we're going to do it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think we should just begin right off the bat with how aerial refueling began in the first place. I mean, Dud and I kind of touched on it, but I think you have a special insight on this. Cause again, you've, you've written the book on this so we'll talk about your book too. I,
2: Actually, had an entire chapter just on the history of air refueling, and the more I dug into it, Jello, the more fascinating it was.
0: Oh, I don't no doubt that.
2: The first air refueling happened in 1921.
0: So we'd been flying airplanes for what about 20 years? Yes. Okay. All right.
2: Wes May was this gentleman's name. He walked off of the wing of a Lincoln Standard biplane onto the wing of a curtis jenny walked through the wires jumped in the back seat took the five gallon gas can off of his back (laughs) and poured gas into the tank that was the first air refueling and of course everybody said there's got to be a better way to do this yeah (laughs) and so a lot of people began exploring better ways to refuel and everybody in the navy that i know has been to coronado island Back early in the history of U.S. aviation, the Navy had one side, the Army Air Corps had another side of Coronado Island. Mm -hmm. And the first really long range air refuelings took place over Coronado Island with a gentleman by the name of John Richter, who had actually put a fire hose inside another airplane with a big gas can. They dropped it out the floor to another airplane with a regular nozzle on it. And that's how they started passing gas. (laughs) And uh, they stayed up for 37 hours the first time they did it. Wow. Just to prove the concept. Just to prove the concept. And then began doing a lot more with it. And so after they had done it over Coronado Island, they went to the farthest northern city, town in Washington and flew all the way down to San Diego, just to say they could do it. Mm -hmm. And they did.
0: Well, they were pioneers.
2: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And then came the question mark, which was doing basically the same thing. And the airplane, the question mark had these really famous Air Force, Air Corps people in it, Tui Spots was the guy that was running the show.
5: Okay.
2: He was flying with Elwood Pete Quesada as a young lieutenant, and the question mark stayed up for a week. They took off on the 1st of January and flew through the entire week, and fuel wasn't the problem. One of the engines threw a rod, and they had to land on Friday. (laughs) Okay? And... There's a really funny story about this, too, because Spots got drenched during one of the night refuelings, and they didn't know what to do. They And they said, well, you've got to take off your flight suit and all that kind of stuff. And so they did. And the next time the tanker came up to give them gas, mm-hmm. Spots was standing in the little hatchway above the airplane, goggles, boots, and a parachute, and that was it.
0: <laughs> that sounds like something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> in the finest traditions of airmen everywhere
2: <laughs> and you would never get away with that today. Uh, but there he was with a smile on his face, you know, and here's the guy that's going to lead the eighth air force in England, <laughs> the first chief of staff of the air force, literally oh, buck naked waiting for the thing to come down. He had a big smile on his face. Oh, and, of
0: course. Well, he had the important parts. He had the goggles and the and the boots and the parachute.
2: Yeah. Oh, heavens me. Okay. Believe it or not, the first air refueling in combat happened in June of 1950 during the Korean War huh. when KB 29s with the English Flight Refueling Limited air refueling system, which was like a drogue system, refueled F 80s, RF 80s that were taking pictures over North Korea. Huh. And they did it off the coast of Wonsan. And they continued doing that, and they had a guy, I think he was in an F-84, who flew the longest, at that time, fighter combat mission, 12 hours in the seat.
0: Ugh, forget about it.
2: <laughs> I know. And think about the seats that we have now versus the seats they had in the 1950s. Oh, I and can't can, imagine. And you can understand how uncomfortable that was, okay? Yeah. But he expended all of his ordnance, dropped his 500-pound bomb, shot all of his rockets, shot all of his guns, and then was direct in traffic over North Korea, refueling off of a KB-29 that was coming out of Yokota Air Base in Japan. Wow. So that was the first combat air refueling. And back then, the boom was just coming into the Air Force fleet. The brand-new Air Force was flying... KB-29s, there was KB-29M and KB-29P. The mamas had the drogue and the papas had the boom. Uh-huh. And they had to do the boom because they just couldn't pass enough gas fast enough into the new bombers that were coming out. Right. The B-52s, the B-47s, B-47s is coming out, B-52s are on the drawing boards getting ready to come out. And Curtis LeMay, they actually put a hose in a B-47 and had another B-47 refuel off of the hose. And it took them an hour and 10 minutes to fill the thing up. Jeez! And that's when Curtis LeMay said, "This this dog don't hunt. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Yeah. He went to Boeing and said... You guys got to come up with a better way. And that's where the boom came from.
0: Well, and I want to talk about that because again, we touched on it earlier in episode five, but you have the two different methods and you might be tempted to call it the Navy method and the Air Force method, but it's not really because we have a Navy aircraft, the E6 Mercury that Mm -hmm. refuels uh, with the boom style. But just remind us real quickly what the two differences are as far as the methodology, if you will.
2: Sure. Great question. So the drogue air refueling system looks like a badminton shuttlecock. Yeah. It's a big round, the Navy calls it the Iron Maiden for good reason. It weighs 251 pounds, just the basket. All right, It's really heavy, as you know.
5: Yeah.
2: It's just like a hummingbird coming up to a bird feeder. Stick the probe in, once we get the contact light, turn the pumps on. We plan for 1,000 pounds a minute. Okay. through the hoe that has not changed much even in the kc-46 with their pods it averages out about a thousand pounds a minute so that's what our rule of thumb is when we're doing drogue refueling a thousand pounds a minute three minutes between each receiver and that's how we come up with our timing for an air refueling evolution okay
5: okay Mm
2: -hmm. the boom we have four pumps in the kc-135 we can pump 6,000 pounds a minute through the boom.
0: That's six times as much, in other words.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Six times as much. It, again, it's because of the big heavy receivers like the C5, C17, the B-52s. And this was all done during the Cold War time period of the 50s and 60s. And Curtis LeMay says, we can't take 110 minutes filling up a B-52. Right. Even though they had KC-97s with booms, The problem with the KC 97 was they burn different kinds of gas. Uh oh. The old reciprocating engines can't burn the kerosene that the jets do. So the KC 97 actually had great big tanks inside the airplane to hold the jet fuel, which they could not use because of their engines. Wow. And that's why Bill Allen, the CEO of Boeing, says we got to have a jet tanker.
0: Well, Sluggo, is there another piece to this, though, that A B-52, I would think, with a probe would have a harder time getting in the basket than I used to in my F-18. I mean, is there something to that as well?
2: Yeah, there is something to that as well, but it was the transfer rate that drove it. Right.
5: Sure, yeah.
2: And LeMay saying, I can't wait 110 minutes to fill up a B-52 from three different tankers, because you have to remember, even with the KC-135, it takes two to three tankers to drop gas into a B 52. He holds 351,000 pounds of gas, <laughs> something like that. It's a lot of gas.
0: It's like three squadrons of F 18s. I have to always <laughs> yeah. put yeah. things in context for what I'm used to. All right. Well,
2: yeah. And see, I remember during Desert Storm, actually Desert Shield, coming over the top of the John F. Kennedy and saying, We were tuna 5 4, overhead mother. We've got a 90K give. And I just heard everybody laughing in the background. <laughs> 90K give. Yeah, we got 90,000 pounds for you guys, okay? I could hear everybody laughing in the background going, man, that's a lot of gas. Man, that's a lot of gas. Yeah. And it was.
0: Well, yeah, well, to put things in perspective, on an hour and 15 or an hour and 30 cycle in an F-18 with two tanks, if I was lucky, I got 4,000 pounds from either our own tankers or if you guys were somewhere nearby we could go get it mm-hmm. but yeah. to have unlimited fuel it would be like opening the store on christmas morning and just saying, go take what you want because we were always fuel limited and you guys seem to have it in abundance as you yeah. clearly stated there but that was our job and that's
2: what we wanted we wanted to see as many of you come across the basket as we could during desert storm is when We wrote up in the lessons learned, you have to put wingtip pods on this airplane. We can't do this with a single basket on the boom because now we're drogue only. We have to be able to do boom receivers and drogue receivers off of the same tanker. And we have to make them all air refuelable so you can fill them back up. Right. Unfortunately, nobody listened to us. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, those uh, warp pods came around eventually, because I can remember flying formation effectively with a wingman, and we're both refueling at the same time. So when did those come about? Those didn't come out until
2: about Kosovo in 99. Okay. Okay, so Desert Storms, 91, 99, we're finally getting warp pods on the KC-10s. The 135 still don't have warp pods, okay? Mm-hmm. So we, that was a problem for planning, and I was one of the planners in the Vicenza Chaok. And it was driving us nuts because we'd have a KC-135R model taking off with 180,000 pounds of gas over the Adriatic. So that gave him about 110K give, and he's only got the drogue on him, and that's all he can do. Right. Great for you guys, but in a combat search and rescue situation, which we had two of them, remember we had an F-16 go down and an F-117, it was problematic Because we had all of these airplanes that had to go in and search for these guys, and it just created a lot of headaches.
0: Yeah. Well, we've talked about both those downings here on the show, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Fortunately,
2: by the time we went into Iraq for the invasion in 2003, the KC 10 had warp pods and the 135s had MIpper pods, but they were brand new, and we hadn't worked all the bugs out of them. And we had a lot of basket slaps initially,
5: because
2: mm-hmm. what we found out was the take-up reel springs were set at five feet of overtake instead of 10, like in your manuals. Uh-huh. And so the Davy guys were coming up and hitting it too hard, and that's what was causing that sine wave. One of your yeah. air wing commanders off of Lincoln, <laughs> Casey Albright, really got after me one day. He goes, Sluggo, we can't fight a war with your baskets slapping our canopies off, you know? <laughs> and... I'm sure you've known people that have had that basket slap and they feel it through the whole airplane when it happened. Oh yeah. Once we figured out what the problem was and everybody slowed down, it was really effective, particularly for the two carriers, the Truman and the Roosevelt that were off the coast of Turkey. And that's all they had. And we put all yeah. the Mippers pods for them and they loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it.
0: So, Sluggo, I think a logical question from someone who maybe is not as informed could say, Mm -hmm. well, why not just have, if the boom method transfers fuel so much faster, why not just have that for the Navy as well?
2: Great question. And here's one of the reasons why. Your Navy plumbing in your fighters couldn't take 6,000 pounds a minute. It'd blow you off. One of the restrictions that we have for like the F-16, particularly when it's carrying something on its center line, is we can only use one pump because it's like the proverbial mosquito in the vein. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it just blows it off. All <laughs> right. So the F-15s have uh, fairly decent plumbing and we can use two pumps, but even for our air force fighters, we can't put all four pumps on because the plumbing is not made for it. The B-52 was made for it.
5: Mm.
2: Same with your airplanes too. The fighters you know, save weight as you know, is a big deal. And so the pipe size is too small to handle 6,000 pounds per minute. Yeah, We can't do it. It'll just blow you off. And (laughs) that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep you up there and keep you plugged in as long as you need to, to get the gas you want. And that's literally why we do it the way we do.
0: Sure. Well, there was another point I was hinting at, and that is except for an aircraft coming up, we'll talk about the KC 46. Mm -hmm. You need someone in the back of the airplane to take care of the boom. Mm -hmm. Because essentially, as I understand it, I've never done it, but as I understand, if I were in an F 16, I fly up to a certain position and then the boom operator flies the boom into my aircraft Mm -hmm. versus when I show up in my F 18, I fly up to the basket and the boom operator at that point is, is mostly observing. So for our, Oh, what's the word I want? You know, for our uh, native tanking on the carrier there, Mm -hmm. we want to have an aircraft where we don't have someone in the bottom of the thing because the aircraft are generally smaller. Yeah. So you'll put a buddy store on an A-4, on an A-7, on A-6, S-3s, F-18s. And we have a method now where it requires fewer people, frankly.
2: Yes. And for the boom operator, you're absolutely right. For the Navy and a lot of the international partners that we refuel, He just puts the boom down, extends it all the way out, and we just hold it out there in front of you. Right. And you guys get to play with that moving target, (laughs) you know, because I've always been told by all my fighter brothers, you will find the one cloud in the sky and drive me through it. Oh, my. And I'm sure that's happened to you a couple of times.
0: Oh, gosh. That or I used to wear a yellow visor, so you would drag me through the setting sun and I'd have to quickly try to reach up and raise my visor. But um, We just had uh, Snowbird on the show and he mm-hmm. got his call sign from a, a beating with a basket uh, scratch. <laughs> so, <laughs> you guys have made a few call signs. You've had a few ornaments hanging over ready room chairs for the folks unlucky enough to come back with the basket. So, anyway.
2: And the party favors have made it back to us every once in a while, too, where the drogue will end up on a maintenance table somewhere. And that's <laughs> happened, too. I've seen that happen also. <laughs>
0: Oh, geez. The shenanigans of all this. But you know what, Jello? It happens with the boom, though, too. Huh?
2: My very first Desert Shield mission was with a Saudi F 15, and he snapped the nozzle right off
5: hmm.
2: with a brute force disconnect. That brute force disconnect, you could feel through the whole airplane, and the pipe was just bouncing like crazy. And I've got a picture of our nozzle stuck in that f-15 receptacle so don't think you guys are the only ones that do yeah. this to me, okay
0: well and that's a bummer for you because now you've got all this gas and no way to pass it right
2: no uh, uh-uh. we can't hook up with anybody and the crazy stupid thing is we're probably too heavy to land and we have to just dump the gas on the way home oh, which is exactly what we ended up doing we were too heavy to land and too heavy to land our landing weight was had to be below two hundred twenty thousand pounds if you could believe it Jeez. but we had to dump gas to get to that weight yeah there was no nozzle out there and the nozzle has the little poppet valve in it that keeps it closed so all we had to do is just turn on the pumps and gas was spraying everywhere
0: oh, geez. don't think that you
2: guys are the only ones that take off with party favors every <laughs> once in a while it's <laughs> happened with other receivers or receptacle receivers too
0: All right. Well, Sluggo, here's what I want to do on this episode. We've been having some fun already, but I I want to treat this a little bit like our aircraft series. Uh, If you're familiar with the show at all, we'll get an airplane on like the F-15 yeah, and we'll go through all these different topics. But I never thought, with no offense to you, tanker guys, that we would need to do a KC-135 episode and then turn around and do a KC-10 episode Mm -hmm. because they're going to be very similar, I would think. Yes. So I want to talk about those types of things. But first... Particularly since, again, Dud and I on episode five spoke mostly of the tanking around the ship. I want to talk about like strategic aerial refueling. And I think, what, are there five doctrinal air refueling missions? Is that right? Yeah. And let me go
2: through those just really quick with you, okay?
0: Okay. So out of our
2: doctrine document, which is publication 3-17, Air Force publication, we have five missions. The first one is global strike. And it's just what you think it is. This is the nuclear missions that we would do or the long range missions like with the B2. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just before president Trump was inaugurated at the very last few days of president Obama's administration, he sent two B2s to Sirte, Libya. Both of them were bombing two different camps that were there around the city. They were loaded with 80, 500 pounds JDAMs in each airplane, all right, with a Predator overhead watching what was going on. And if I remember right, talking to the tanker lead planner, said they had 17 refuelings, and they gave them 995,000 pounds of gas during the mission. Okay? Almost wow. a million pounds of gas for two B-2s to go from Whiteman Air Force Base to Libya and back. That's
5: crazy.
2: That's a really good example of a global strike mission, a conventional global strike mission. Okay. When I came into the Air Force, we had the nuclear mission, which I talked about. We had Mm FB-111s at my base at Pease. We had B-52s carrying the air Launch cruise missiles. The FB-111s had B-61 nuclear bombs or what was called the short-range attack missile. And that's also, a global strike kind of mission. Second mission is called air bridge. Obviously, when we go to war, you have to get all of the troops, beans, butter, bullets over there, mm-hmm. and we create this tanker air bridge that leaves basically the northeast, gets you across Greenland, Iceland, over to England or Germany. But in some cases, they will fly Strike Eagles straight from North Carolina to a base in the Middle East. Long mission, 15 to 17 hours, long time to be in an ejection seat. Oh, yeah. But that is a typical air bridge. On the 6th and 7th of March in 2003, Air Mobility Command tankers were refueling 120 fighters, bombers, and ISR airplanes simultaneously in the air heading over for the invasion. That is an example of air bridging. We also have what's called deployment support, which is the third mission. And that's a mission where a good example is the tsunami relief that we had when the big tsunamis went through Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. We had C5s full of all kinds of crazy things. One of them was full of lumber and sheet plastic, Visqueen. Wow. From mm-hmm. literally nose to tail. And Asking what that was, what, you know, this queen, really? It's what they used to make temporary shelters out of. Right. Those C-5s were deploying directly from Travis, refueling over near Alaska, then coming down near Misawa and Tokyo, and then once again down near Taiwan, so that they could fly into Utapau and drop off all their stuff. That's kind hmm. of a deployment support kind of thing, okay? Okay theater support is like supporting you guys right going in dropping bombs shooting missiles taking out sam's where we'll set up in a race track pattern it's always a left hand turn thank you i designed mine 70 miles long by 30 miles wide so that we could refuel you guys in your hornets or the b1 because the b1 when it gets heavier can't use 30 degrees of bank, has to go to 15 degrees of bank, which means we need a wider turning circle Mm -hmm. because we're refueling at about 320 miles an hour also. So it has a great big turning radius. So that's why we made them 30 by 70. Yeah. And again, it's guys coming up, guys and gals coming up, dropping bombs, shooting missiles, uh, ISR airplanes. And those are typically the anchors that you see Like over Iraq and Syria right now, during the invasion, we had them all set up Uh across the Saudi border. And about the fourth day is when we moved inside Iraqi airspace. Uh, I named all of the Iraqi airspace anchors after female country Western singers, (laughs) Shania, Reba, Leanne, uh, Martina, you know, they're all named after female country Western singers.
0: I think I do remember a couple of those, Martina. And uh, let's see, my last time there was an 05.
2: Yeah, some of those actually were there for a couple of years. Yeah. The fifth mission we have is uh, special operations support. These are usually very fascinating missions because a lot of times we do them low level. Really? At 3,000 feet with three to maybe 6,000 feet because the special ops guys, they don't want to be seen. Right. AC-130s, MC-130s, and so forth, will refuel. And that takes a special certification. I was a low-level guy out of Kadena. It was really fun to do it, particularly out over the ocean. We were refueling an MC-130 once off the coast of the Philippines. and went right over the top of a bunch of fishing boats, and they were scattering and jumping into wheelhouses <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> you see these two big airplanes flying down low. Yeah. But Well, in those special operations missions, like for the MC-130, we'll fill it full of gas, and then it will go down even lower to refuel the special operations helicopters, like the 160th SOAR special operations helicopters for the Air Force. That It used to be the Pave Lowe's when I was in the, the, and they're a big helicopter. Yeah, yeah. They would take that gas and go down low and give it to... Now,
0: you guys could do that, or was
2: that KC-130s? The MC-130s would okay. do it. all right. They would do it. We, we can't go slow enough. And we were just on the edge even doing the MC-130s. Gotcha. We had to be below 220,000 pounds, and even then we had to put the flaps down to 20 degrees so oh, that we could wow. slow down enough. Okay, gotcha. And another planning factor for us is the boom does not have enough airflow over the ruddervators below 190 knots. So... You know, sometimes we're like right on the edge, particularly when we're doing A-10s that were really loaded down because we'd have to be about 210 knots if they had all 10 of their stations filled mm-hmm. with weapons. And that was slow for us.
0: Yeah, I don't doubt it. Sluggo, which one of these would it be? And I'm going to take a guess. But if my squadron and I were going to deploy from the West Coast to, let's say, Iwakuni, Japan, mm-hmm. and we're just going to go with you the whole way, is that going to be a deployment support?
2: That's what it's going to be. Okay. And we call those coronets. Yeah, that's right. We've called those things coronets, you know, forever. Yeah. I came into the tanker fleet in 1985, and they were called coronets even then. And we had coronets for a lot of different things. Fighter movements, C-141s filled with troops, that was considered a coronet. KC-10s that were carrying cargo and had fighters on the wings that were going somewhere, that was considered a coronet also.
0: Wow. Okay. We didn't really rattle through them, but you guys can refuel almost everything in the inventory, right? I mean, even the presidential and strategic and other uh, high-value aircraft.
2: Oh, yeah. Air Force One is air-refuelable. The Airborne Command Post is air-refuelable. I have never refueled any of those airplanes. A 747 fills the window up pretty good, though. I bet. It's a big airplane, but a C-5, is just massive. C-17 is pretty good, but Something your listeners will get a kick out of knowing. The C-5 can actually move the tanker by moving the boom. The airplane's so big. Okay.
0: <laughs> the law of gross tonnage, huh?
2: Yeah, the law of gross tonnage. But <laughs> their airflow over the nose of the airplane, we have to be really careful when they back out. Because if they back out too fast, it brings us together. Oh. And it's really scary when that happens. I've only had that happen once to me. I even had the autopilot on and I could feel the airplane dropping cause you know, you get light in the seat mm-hmm. and I punched the autopilot off and started climbing and we did what was called a breakaway and the word you never want to hear breakaway, breakaway, yeah. breakaway, breakaway. Cause yeah. that means things have gone bad. Yeah. But it's only happened to me one time with a C5 and that was during a training mission where the pilot backed up too fast, but we actually used to have a demonstration mission that we did where we were in 90 degrees of bank with a B-52 hooked to the boom. And he was flying us by moving the boom back and forth.
0: See, I saw those pictures and I thought, no way.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. How do you guys do that? We do it in Leafs. Okay. And you go up one side, down the other. And and literally the B-52 is just moving the boom back and forth underneath us. And then we had about a 1.5 G pull and then He'd go to the other side and the airplane would bank to 90 degrees. And every instructor pilot up until uh, about the 2000, 2001 timeframe, that was a typical maneuver when you went through instructor pilot upgrade. Wow. We call it the whiff. And so those pictures that you are seeing is something that all of us did up until 2001. It was really cool to watch it from the back. (laughs) I
0: can only imagine, but did someone finally risk-manage it out of your repertoire?
2: Yeah. Yeah. When KC-135 combat crew training moved from Castle Air Force Base to Altus when we became part of AMC, the amc is go no we're not doing this anymore
0: (laughs) yeah i mean if something goes badly with those big airplanes and all that fuel that's probably not going to be pretty we have a listener question coming up about that in just a little bit But, but okay all right so i told you i wanted to ask about some of the aircraft now mm-hmm. three of them are pretty similar but let's start with the kc-130 now we've had the ac-130 on the show mm-hmm. we haven't had a c-130 episode yet but the kc-130 the mc-130 i mean i guess it's a standard c-130 but they're going to do the drogue method only right they're not going to do it that is anymore. correct and i mean what more two of there is it
2: it's kind of set up like the battle hercs in the marine corps so they've got inboard tanks that are full of gas. They've got the mm-hmm. pods made by Cobham out on the wings. And it's just for basket receivers. And yeah. they obviously can slow down and do helicopters or speed up and do F-18s. Uh, the MAGTAF just relies on those things heavily. And now, of course, even the Ospreys, the tilt rotors, can refuel off of the back of these things, too. Yeah. So. I've never done a C-130 refueling mission, but I have been in the helicopter that refueled off of an MC-130 out of Kadena at night, which was a lot of fun. It was really fascinating to watch uh, air refueling from the other side. And they had their flaps down. (laughs) What was really cool is they had the back troop doors open and there's two guys standing there watching us. (laughs) Okay. And we were only at 1,500 feet at night doing this off the coast of Okinawa and it was really fascinating to watch. And again, the KC 135 would fill up the MC 130s. The MC 130s would go down to 1500 feet and uh, refuel the helicopters and give them all kinds of gas. And uh, I did it one time when I was at Kadena. It was really a lot of fun to watch.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I don't doubt it. My KC
2: 135 is one of the oldest airplanes in the inventory. Now, when I was stationed at Fairchild, in the 2000 2003 timeframe, I came off the assembly line in May of 1957, and we had three jets on the ramp that came off in 56 and one in 55. So the KC 135 has been going for over 60 years and will go probably for another 20 years. Uh, they have upgraded the cockpits to it now, yep. they have really spectacular glass cockpit with GPS and all the latest tools, and we have what's called TCAS, Terminal Collision and Avoidance System in it, and we would actually do rendezvous off of the TCAS system. That's why you heard us ask you for your Mode 3. The tanker would ask the receivers for their Mode 3 because when you got within 40 miles of us on extended range, whoever was squawking those four numbers would show up on that 40 miles, and it gave us really good SA off of our TCAS system to see where you were coming at as we were flying the left-hand oval. Mm-hmm. And we could manage our pattern inside our racetracks by watching where you guys were coming in based on a mode three of one of the guys or gals in your 4 formation. It was a totally new way of doing rendezvous that the maker of it, Rockwell Collins, had no idea we were doing that. So it's been upgraded. It's got new engines. Yeah, The story of the engines is incredible. The CFM-56 engines are fantastic engines.
0: Yeah, these aren't the old turbojets that you needed uh, fresh water for, huh? <laughs>
2: no, uh uh-uh. And let me just talk about that real quick, okay? So the J57 engines, we called the old A-models water wagons because we would burn about 5,500 pounds of water in 125 seconds to get us off the ground, all right? And it shook the whole airframe when we did it. Hmm. Imagine a heavyweight formation of four KC-135s taking off with 12 second intervals during a minimum interval takeoff. That was the SAC standard. Got really smoky. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how three and four could see you down the runway. And you'd have three airplanes on the runway. You'd have one just turning on, one about midfield, and one just breaking ground. But it was done to get airplanes off of the airfield quickly right. because of inbound missiles. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The R model engines have given the KC-135 40% more gas available. Amazing engines. And the story of how we almost didn't get those engines is fascinating. There's a really good book out there called The Power to Fly that has the story of how GE and the French Sneckbuck group got together. And they were within about a week of closing down the whole CFM-56 program. And the French KC-135 unit says, well, we'll put them on our airplane. And that kind of started the ball rolling. Hmm. But the R model engines was a huge boost to KC-135 capability. We went from burning 13,000 pounds an hour down to about 10. That's a good savings. That's a really good savings.
0: (laughs) Especially over hours and hours over multiple aircraft. But
2: yeah. On a longer mission, the KC 135R model can actually offload more gas than a KC 10, even though the KC 10 is taking off with 320,000 pounds and we're taking off with 180 because it's burning it at 20,000 pounds an hour in the KC 10. Yeah. So the KC
0: 135, you said at the beginning, was based on the 707 platform, which, as Mm -hmm. I understand, is also the platform for the E3 Sentry, as well as some of the J Stars and, of course, our E6 Mercury. Mm -hmm. But the KC 10 based off basically a DC 10, right? It's got the two underwing engines and one up on the tail. Mm -hmm. I mean, are they otherwise? I mean, in broad strokes, I realize there's a lot of commonalities and differences, but both great big airplanes adapted for aerial refueling. And I mean, I don't know how much more we need to get into, but what would you say are the biggest differences other than the fuel you just mentioned between those two?
2: There's one thing that the KC 10s do that the KC 135s don't, and that is they could move a squadron quickly. Okay. It's called a deconfiguration. It's got 75 airline seats and all of their stuff, cargo loaded in the back of the airplane. And so you'll have two or three KC-10s on some of these deployment support missions, Jello, mm-hmm. that are dragging like an F-15 squadron or an F-18 squadron and they'll have their maintenance people, all of their spare parts, all of their maintenance stuff and everything That's one mission, they call it a dual-role mission, where it's doing airlift and air refueling at the same time, Mm. which is one of the great things about the KC-10, and it'll be one of the great things about the KC-46 to be able to do the same thing. We can air refuel it, we can dump gas into it, and on some of these really long deployment support missions where an F-15E squadron is leaving Seymour Johnson on North Carolina going all the way to the Gulf, it'll be behind KC-10s that are moving all of their maintenance people, all of their support people, all of their parts, all of their engines and everything on two or three KC-10s that are moving over there. And the KC-135s would hook up with them, give them 80,000 pounds of gas and send them on their way.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So I have to ask the obvious question here, Sluggo. Mm -hmm. How are they able to carry all those people and all those things? Isn't the inside full of the fuel they're giving?
2: No, it's all in the floor. It's all under the floor.
0: So a lot like an airliner.
2: Yeah, it looks like a cargo plane, like an MD-11. So it's got a flat cargo floor. You can move all the pallets around. And like I said, in the D configuration, it'll put 75 seats and still have the cargo floor. You can always get back to the boom pod in the back. Uh, they got really nice soft chairs and really, you know, the boom operator's not laying down. Mm -hmm. And again, you can keep dumping gas into it. That's what makes the KC-10 and the KC-46 so valuable is you can fill up the gas station. Yeah. The 135 only has eight air refuelable KC 135s in the entire fleet.
0: Out of a fleet of how many?
2: Uh, We started with 732. I think we're down to 432 now.
0: Yeah. I think I saw some out at the Boneyard when I was there in February. Yeah. All right. Tell us about this KC 46 that's coming. It's based off the 767.
2: Yeah. So the KC 46, as you know, the competition, the Airbus airplane won the first competition. Boeing protested. Won the second competition. KC-46 is going to do a lot of the same missions like a KC-10. Like I said, airlift and air refueling, dual roll. But a lot of these same missions that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It has defensive systems on it. You'll know if you're getting shot at by shoulder-fired SAMs. It does not have expendables like chaff or flares on it. But it does have Link-16. Yeah, it's really nice. They really did a good job of putting this together during the competition i had the opportunity to brief both boeing and airbus northrop croman and i made the same six slides that i said to both companies in the last slide was here is what this airplane must look like after being a guy that has flown in four wars and uh, they did it right now you've heard a lot of problems with the boom vision system the boom has got problems in the envelope with heavy receivers And they're working all that stuff out. I have no doubt that Boeing is going to fix it. Mm -hmm. How long it's going to take to fix it, I don't know. But they're working through all of those systems. And the big one right now is the remote vision system that runs the boom, because now the boom operator is up front in the cockpit. And that's not unusual, because the Airbus airplane has had that. The Dutch KDC-10 has had a remote vision system, and they've all worked out fine. They just got to work the bugs out of it, and the KC-46 is going to be a great airplane, I have no doubt.
0: That's good. I mean, there's always growing pains with new technology and oh, yeah, yeah. an aircraft that wasn't a tanker from the beginning.
2: No, so. exactly. And you have to remember, too, when they made this particular airplane, they took pieces of all the 767s to put it into an airframe that had to go through airworthiness. Because it was a new airframe, because it has the better wings, the newer engines, the longer fuselage, all those kinds of things. So it had to go through an airworthiness certification just to be able to fly. And then we added on the missions and so forth. And Rockwell Collins makes the cockpit for it. And it's a great cockpit. It's a 787 cockpit. Oh, nice. Yeah, really nice. I mean, it's got the heads up guidance system, the really good glass and It's a lot of fun
0: to fly. (laughs) You're out of superlatives, uh, Slego. I am. That tells me something. All right.
2: But the Airbus airplane is too. I got to fly the the A330 simulator when it was down in Melbourne, Florida. And it's doing great things too. Mm -hmm. All the countries that have it just absolutely love it. It has not had all of the growing pains that the KC-46 has had though. And that's why you don't hear anything about it the A330 tankers are doing famously the Australians love it it's won the last three competitions against the Boeing tanker by the way
0: yeah well so the US doesn't have the corner on the market on big wing tankers no. right i mean you've got you talked about a canadian australian obviously there're british tankers there's even yeah. of course russian and chinese tankers
2: yes there are i actually have time in a VC10 with the RAF that's awesome They were pigs. They were
0: pigs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You better qualify that statement. What
2: do you mean? They took off with (laughs) 165,000 pounds of gas and burned about 16,000 pounds an hour. Very fuel inefficient engines. Okay. But great tankers, great crews. They have full-up galleys on them. And so when we were flying Northern Watch missions over Turkey, Mm -hmm. they had bacon and cheese sandwiches going out. You know, going out to the area, out of the oven, and ham and cheese coming back, you know. And the basket operator, you know, he wasn't doing that. And he goes, hey, you know, you want a bacon and cheese sandwich? Yeah, sure. It was just fun to fly with them to see how they did things. Yeah. And it was a basket-only airplane. And we were refueling the British Jaguars and the EA-6Bs off of the VC-10. Yeah. So I got two rides in it when we were deployed right after nine eleven to Inserlik and uh, just had a great time.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I think I did refill off of one of those ones, yeah.
2: Yeah, and they have the nice, soft Nerf baskets, not the Iron Maiden like we do. <laughs> really a nice tanker. Old avionics, though, really comfortable airline seats, and like I said, they're very fuel-inefficient. And now, yeah. of course, the RAF flies the new A330 Voyager, which the Australians do. Singapore just got rid of all of its KC-135s and is now flying Airbus airplanes. Okay. Really good airplanes. And I actually was involved in the Embraer KC 390 build. Not heard of that one. The KC 390 is built by Embraer. It's a completely new airframe. It's twin engine jet, uh, high wing, so it can do airlift and air refueling through drogues. And it's going to be a really nice airplane. It has a 787 cockpit in it. The fusion cockpit in it and uh, okay really nice airplane and it's just going through its initial testing and so forth so the brazilians now have tankers that they're going to start selling too
0: does most of the rest of the world do the drogue system or who else does boom the australians do boom
2: they had f-111s that was the reason why all of the okay. f-111s are gone now but yeah they went ahead and put booms on all their airplanes anyway. And while they were over here, there was three airplanes that came over to do Red Flag out of Nellis. And one of them stayed and got all of its certifications to do B-52s, B-1s, RC-135s, AWACs, would not let them do the F-22s and the B-2s because of the material on the outside of the airplane, wow. but they got all of their certifications to do all of the air force and Navy airplanes while they were here, which once they deployed over to Iraq and they're flying out of Aldafra was huge because it's air refuelable has a boom, has the wingtip pods. It's the perfect tanker. And the Australians did that all on their own. Nice. Yeah, it was. It was fabulous. And that's cool. The French and the British are actually thinking about putting booms on theirs now, too.
0: Huh. All right. You talked about defensive systems. I would think something like a tanker, its biggest defense is listening to what's going on, maintaining situational awareness, mm-hmm. and getting out of there before anything becomes an issue. And now, on your air crew interview with Mike, you talked about a time over Iraq where some F 15s checked in and save the day as you were getting a little nervous but i mean what else is there on these aircraft if you're relying on chaff and flares as big as you are i mean no offense but i don't see that being really effective no it's not
2: and we rely on people like you brother to help us to defend us (laughs) okay we are probably the most over defended airplane on the planet because we have all the gas and when we moved all the air refueling anchors into iraq we did it on day four and it was really early and we hadn't dealt with some of the surface-to-air missile science projects that saddam had and particularly the guns
0: are we talking 1991 or 2003
2: i'm talking 2003 sorry i'm talking iraqi freedom so general mike mosley came up to me in the hallway and said sluggo we have to move the tankers into iraq 19 year old kids are getting shot at in najaf And the gas is too far south. We have to move them up. I said, well, sir, we can do that. But, you know, I got to figure out how we're going to defend them and so forth. And he says, Slogo, the tankers are going to have to take some of the risk, too. You guys can't just sit back in Saudi and fly out the war there. We've got to move you guys up. We're having to fly too far to come get gas and then go back. It's taking too much time and it's taking too much gas to do it. I said, "Okay. when do you want this by? Tomorrow. "Okay, sir. So we did the same thing. 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. The first two we opened were just on the other side of that disputed diamond area between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. <laughs> we called it the Klingon neutral zone. We put two tracks right above that, Chennai and Reba. We really started to figure out how we could defend the tankers by doing that because they were getting shot at quite a bit, mostly by ground guns. <laughs> Unbeknownst to us, the multiple launch rocket systems were actually f- being shot over the tanker tracks, which was kind of disconcerting yeah, I would say we just had to come up with procedures to take your systems that you had on board your f eighteen and the f fifteen strike eagle you know the targeting pods, the radar, your warning systems, and so forth, and share that information with the tankers and what we did is like one airplane would refuel for the f-15s two airplanes would refuel while two were like down rooting around making sure to keep everybody's heads down Mm -hmm. and then they would switch the a-10 guys got involved and what we did was the a-10 started looking around hunting for stuff underneath the tanker tracks they called it the pig pen (laughs) we had three tracks right next to each other they called it the pig pen but it was the CSAR hogs So it actually gave them an advantage because they were already airborne, already hunting for things. And if they had to go find a downed pilot or a crew, they were already airborne. We would immediately give them gas and off they would go. So it actually shortened their reaction time. Again, we were doing all this on the fly though. Wow. And then we got the special ops guys involved. And (laughs) there's a really funny story about that. (laughs) This unwashed, unshaven, Special ops guy sees an SA-8 coming down the highway, takes the javelin off his back, shoots the javelin missile at it, runs out in front of his team, turns around, and he's yelling at his bros, take a picture when the missile hits, take a picture when the missile hits. And they came and showed me that picture. He says, hey, the soft guys are taking care of you guys too. That's cool. That's how we did it. And But we rely on you guys to help defend us and work out all those procedures. That's how we did it.
0: All right. So what you're telling me is that uh, defensive stuff aside, again, your best bet is the pointing nose folks and the guys on the ground, yeah. the whole team taking care of you.
2: Yeah. The whole team has to take care of us, man. Yeah. We're like the baby in the crib with the bottle. <laughs>
0: well, uh, but an you important know? one. I mean, come on. Yeah.
2: Uh, that bottle being the thing that you're going to suck on, not I'm going to suck on. All right. <laughs> well, let's let's stop
0: this before it gets a little too weird. But anyway, yeah, all right. <laughs> All right, man. So, golly, I mean, we've talked about the differences between the boom and the drogue. We've talked about mm-hmm. the doctrinal air refueling missions. You know what yeah. we didn't talk about? That? There is an aerial refueling weapon school. Is there not? There is. And do you know someone who was involved in setting that up?
2: <laughs> Worst four years of my career. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but
0: probably the
2: most rewarding at the same time, okay? There's- yeah. I mean, all of the fighter guys at Nellis looked at us like, what in the world are you going to teach at a tanker weapons school? And we really needed a higher level, a PhD level tanker planner. Fortunately, AMC knew that and they cut a check to start the school. I was the XO of the initial cadre. And we began in 1999, moved to Fairchild Air Force Base, and we had a blank sheet of paper. (laughs) It's like, what are we going to teach? What do we need to teach? What are the tools, what are the skill sets that the tanker guys need to have, tanker guys and gals need to have that we don't have right now? And we were literally given carte blanche to come up with that. And that was difficult at first because we'd fought two wars, Desert Storm and Allied Force, with no tanker expertise at the operational level. We had the majority of the tanker folks did not know how to read an air tasking order. And now they're told we have to plan these great, big, huge air campaigns. And so it was a real pickup game.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Fortunately for me, I learned how I taught myself, but they didn't have anybody that knew how to yeah. construct air fueling tracks. I got the Navy portion. I was the only one on the initial cadre that had been on an aircraft carrier. And that's the reason I got that block of instruction. I didn't know where to start. Well, if you want to start, you go to the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center. There you go. I went up there, called a guy by the name of Toast Bernie. I can't remember his real name. Yeah, Will Bernie.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Will Bernie, yeah, okay. I went up there, and Toast showed me around and said, okay, here's what you need. And that's where I learned about the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Manual. And I thought to myself, why does the Air Force not have this? This simplified our life completely. And so what I did is I took your Naval Strike and Air Warfare manual, did all of our ground school courses there. Then at the end of the day, we'd get on an airplane, go down to San Diego. The next day we would tour a cruiser, find out how they're doing things. The AOC afloat ship at that time was the USS Coronado. We would tour that in the afternoon. And then that night... We'd put all of our bags on the carrier that we're going to go out to sea at. And we'd go out to sea for two days and a night so that our tanker guys could experience it all. Mm -hmm. We had 17 training objectives just for the aircraft carrier alone. So it was really tightly packed. But again, no tanker guys had been on carriers and understood how you guys did business, how you did long range strike, how you guys defended the fleet, how you wanted to integrate the big wing tanker into the air wing operations. I left that school in April of 2001 and everything changed September 11th, <laughs> right. didn't it?
0: A couple months later. Did you get a chance to go on the flight deck during carrier operations? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah we took everybody up uh, on the flight deck. We didn't just sit in Vultures Row. We actually went out to the LSO platform. Good. We would break into smaller groups and when they were shooting, our guys were actually amongst the guys where they were shooting the airplanes off. I mean, they gave them the whole experience. Yeah. They went down into Catsy, the Carrier Air Traffic Control Center, yep. when they were doing all the night approaches and landings. And then again, went back up on the deck when they were doing uh, <laughs> night approaches and everything so they yeah. could see that. Yeah. You know, of course, they're all going, man, did we go to the right recruiter? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but. At the same time, it was extremely valuable education for them, but we had 482 academic hours, 18 five-hour flights, a three-hour sim, and a graduate-level paper that they had to do in 19 weeks.
0: That's cool. So the idea being is when you wear that patch as a tanker pilot, the uh, ability to, and the credibility to handle pretty much almost any mission, Air Force, Marine, Navy, right? All these different five uh, tasks you guys do and all that?
2: Exactly. And here's an interesting story about that. One of our graduates, because we go down to Fort Bliss and we talk to all of the Army air defense experts down there about man pads and
0: threats and all that. Yeah.
2: Enemy threats, enemy SAMs, and all that. And because we went on the Aegis cruisers and understood how you did things, one of our graduates actually was given the task to go to Israel. To help with an air defense exercise. Oh, wow. Because he'd been on a cruiser, knew how the Navy did things. The Navy was taking part in this and understood how the Air Force did it, how the Navy did it, threat defense, and all that kind of stuff. So he ended up being on the air defense group <laughs> in this big exercise in Israel. The difference that that school made, Jello, between the planning of Desert Storm and allied force and the planning for enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom was night and day, you know, because we had people that understood how you and your F-18 did business, how the Navy was going to do their long range strike planning, how the air force was going to do it, how our international partner was going to do it. And they are the air refueling experts. Setting up that school was tough. Nobody wanted us. Everybody thought it was a stupid idea. Squadron commander in the building that we were in came up to me one day and said, this is the stupidest idea AMC's ever come up with. Why are you guys doing this? And we were getting beat up quite a bit, but 9-11 changed everything. And now we've got these experts out there. There's 200 grads of the school now. It's been going for 20 years. Like I said, one of the toughest assignments I had was setting up that school, but it was one of the most rewarding things I did and during my Air Force career, setting up a weapons school.
0: Cool. Well, Sluggo, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from you, and (laughs) I know we could go on and on. I do have some listener questions I'd like you to cover, and I think we're going to save those as a lightning round for our exclusive Patreon audience. But before we go, I want you to tell people where they can find you. So first off, you wrote a book, right? Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. Uh, We're going to link to that on our shop page. On the fighter pilot podcast but just tell us briefly what that book is about
2: the book is 22 chapters on experiences that i had while i was flying the kc-135 the opening chapter is the first night of desert storm refueling the first weasel package into baghdad but each one of the 22 chapters has like a moral value lesson learned like humor courage innovation, initiative, those kinds of things, relationships. The other thing that's cool is I always had my camera with me, jello on the floor. When I retired, I had 4,000 color slides Mm. of pictures out the window. And some of them are really incredible. So there's 32 pictures in the book that I took during the missions that I'm talking about in the different chapters. Nice. There's two chapters about being on the aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy twice during Desert Storm. And then again, right after Operation Anaconda in March of 2002, it talks about all the planning that we had to go through for setting up a lot of the missions, uh, doing a humanitarian mission Mm -hmm. and saving passengers on Korean Air Flight 801 that crashed short of the one way in Agana, Guam. how the Air Force got its uh, airlift fleet going to bring burned victims back to the States and uh, fix them up. Uh, a lot of really cool stories in that. And like I said, each chapter has one of these uh, lessons from the cockpit. You know, here's what I learned from this and a lot of great pictures.
0: Well, that's pretty cool because uh, one of my favorite pictures in my catalog from my career is one a tanker pilot took for me after we came off uh, I believe it was a KC-135 and I'm waving to the guy and it's such good resolution you can kind of zoom in and see my traditional yellow visor and the uh, my arm up but uh, you know at, when it happened I pulled up and he goes, Hey, pull up a little farther. I got a camera. Okay. And then he goes, Hey, give me your email address and I'll send it to you. I said, yeah, sure. Whatever. So, you know, I'm spelling it phonetically over the radio and thinking <laughs> I'll never see this thing, but now I love it. I use it all the time. I think we used it as the episode art for like episode one on the show. Oh, so perfect. Uh, yeah. yeah. You guys are awesome.
2: I've sent a lot of pictures out to guys that, uh, one guy later became a two-star general.
5: Oh, cool.
2: It's Dennis. And during a mission I had, he came in really, really close. You know, it kind of scared me because our wings were <laughs> overlapping because he's, he's really close and he's up forward. And that's normally not where they sit. And right, and he knew it was me, and I had my camera up taking pictures and everything like that. We got on the ground. I said, Zot, how in the world did you know it was me? And I said, Sluggo, we can see your gray head for miles. <laughs> it, was, uh, it turned out to be a really cool picture, too, with new snow on the mountains going around the turn and looking down at him and everything. It's one of those yeah. really cool pictures.
0: Oh yeah, that's good. All right. So we're going to link to the book for you. In fact, uh, we had talked about it before we rolled tape and I guess we can figure it out right here and now with everyone listening. If you want, do you want to give a couple of those away? We have a pretty cool system for doing raffles and we have people sign up and a couple of them win. You can send a personal note and send it off to them. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Well, we'll figure out the details, and by the time this airs, the folks should be able to check the show notes and our social media for a giveaway. We'll do a couple books, and we'll have you sign at Sluggo. I'd be happy to. Awesome. Now, you also said you are a speaker, so where can people find out how to book you, and what do you speak about? I'm speaking on inspirational
2: and educational things, one of my... keynote speeches, aviate, navigate, and communicate.
0: There you go.
2: you never heard those three words, have you?
0: <laughs> no, never.
2: <laughs> you know? All right. Those are the three words that every pilot uses to get through an emergency. And I talk about how to aviate through the critical things in your life. I had a son that got cancer and unfortunately didn't make it. What it was like, you know, having to aviate through that kind of a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, navigate. I actually got to drive the John F. Kennedy while it was underway uh, refueling. <laughs> and I talk about how to navigate through doing new things in your life, you know, and yeah. not fearing stepping in and learning new experiences and so forth. And that was really a unique experience to sit there in the Oxcon with the USS Seattle next to us, taking on I think, 1.2 million pounds of jet fuel and 300 bombs mm-hmm. and 6,000 hot dogs. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, better ways to communicate both in the boardroom and in our personal lives. you know, yeah. navigate, navigate, and communicate. And I am right now building our new website. It'll be markhasera.com, and you can find
0: me there. Okay. Well, we will link to you, and that sounds great. Hopefully, you he can help you find some, some gigs, if you will. Sure. And then what about this wall pilot thing? Where can we find <laughs>
2: that? Again, we're rebuilding the website now, and right now we're doing everything off of our Facebook page on wall pilot okay on Facebook and you can i m us what kind of airplane you're looking for, and more than likely we can do it. We have thirteen thousand profiles drawn wow. Wow. and but we customize them with your name, the unit that you want uh yeah. the um, bombs or missile load that you want. I sent you two examples. They're really, really detailed and they're printed on vinyl so you can peel them off mm-hmm. and stick them to your walls. Just like uh the sports figures, fat heads. And yeah. We're having a lot of success with this guys. One guy ordered six eight footers. We did a thirty footer for one guy.
0: Wow. They put it up in his hanger and uh Yeah. I'm gonna have to order one of these yeah <laughs> Cause I'm looking at your email right now, and they're pretty cool. What does a normal size go for? i just I have no idea how much these cost
2: a four footer is fifty bucks okay a five footer is sixty nine ninety nine a six footer is eighty nine ninety nine a eight footer is ninety nine ninety nine okay and if you want the unit patches we charge another 20 bucks for putting unit patches around the airplane and everything. It comes on a big strip, mm-hmm. and you can peel those off and put those wherever you want, too. So, <laughs> 20 bucks above the base price, and we'll put the unit wing uh-huh. patches or top gun patch. And we've done some pretty cool patches for folks. One guy actually flew MiGs in the Red Eagle squadron. We actually did a Red Eagle patch for him and, and oh, yeah. did his MiG 21 and his MiG 23. Yeah, cool. Z Man, Rob Zettel.
0: So, I have to ask though, Sluggo, this strikes me as something maybe some spouses wouldn't be too thrilled for. So, I'm thinking man cave type stuff here, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Often we have people ask me, well, let me talk to my wife first and see what kind (laughs) of space she's going to let me do this. But a couple of guys have their own hangers and put them up in their their hangers and stuff. Normally we do between four and five footers pretty often. And, but the detail on them is incredible. These two guys that draw them for us and everything are just fantastic.
0: Well, I'm going to have to, uh, See if I can get the sweetheart deal from you. But I, th- I think I'm going to need sure. one of these. My uh, <laughs> 403 would have been mine from VFA 94. So I'll get you all the numbers. But, man, this has been a lot of fun, Let's go. Um I forgot to ask you, how many years of service and how many flight hours? 24 years, 6 months,
2: 29 days, but nobody's counting. And almost 5,000 hours. Wow. In the 135.
0: Time of service is almost identical. I think I was almost exactly the same, but you've got me by about 1,200 hours. Of course, you get them yeah. by longer blocks at a time than I do. But. but the
2: really cool thing is I got to fly in other airplanes. Yeah. I've got S3 time. Oh,
0: nice. She, I don't even have
2: that. Off of the okay. shortney Gortney, Admiral Gortney, when he was CAG uh, Air Wing 7. Mm-hmm. And I was out aboard right after Anaconda. said, get him up. And I got to log 2.2 in an S3 Viking. <laughs> That's cool. I've got helicopter time. I've got E3 AWACS time, VC-10 time. I've got a lot of time in different airplanes, which was really a lot of fun. Oh, good. Absolutely a blast.
0: Well, what is the future hold for you there, Sluggo? You're doing speaking. you are got your wall pilot stuff. you Are going to write any more books? Or are you retiring up there in Utah?
2: I am writing another series of books right. for to get young kids interested in aviation. A 15-year-old boy is befriended by a former astronaut who is building a Mach 6 capable vehicle in his backyard <laughs> garage with parts he <laughs> bought on eBay. Okay, that sounds fun. Yeah, four volumes in this book and <laughs> he follows in the old man's footsteps. The fourth book is he goes on his own Air Force career and ends up uh, with the vehicle and the antagonist is a uh, north korean chinese pilot that the old man made the airplane to uh defeat wow. to go after him so it's going to be called skybird the skybird series
0: all right yep. excellent Well, will be sure to let us know we're gonna to have to keep in touch because you're just doing so much stuff i think the listeners are gonna love so uh you let us know when that comes out we'll help you promote it and hopefully get a you couple bet. folks uh to get that and and this has just been a lot of fun. Before we let you go, though, you know the drill. We have to explain how someone came up with Sluggo for Mark <laughs> Come on now.
2: All of you got to be feeling really bad for my mom. I weighed 11 pounds, 10 pounds, 14 <laughs> ounces, and was 23 and a half inches tall when I was born. <laughs> I got the pilot training and the nurse, you know, that takes all the medical forms and everything from your birth certificate, grabs it and she's looking at it and she's going... Eleven pounds twenty three and a half inches tall. what a sluggo and you're not going to live that down.
0: Wow, that's good stuff yeah. <laughs> wow, so the nurse gave you a that's a first yeah. on this uh, show. I don't think we've had that one before.
2: yeah, she kind of set the tone for and as you know, you know if you go to combat, that's the one you have that's the one you keep and
0: oh, yeah unless you do something sufficiently stupid that it's worth a new one, but, uh,
2: and don't you and I have stories about that?
0: <laughs> oh, do we? We've told some here on the show. So, yeah. All right. Sluggo. Well, thanks for coming on today. You want to stick around for some listener questions? I would love to. All right, let's do it. All right. Thanks again, Sluggo. That was awesome. And, I get the feeling we'll be hearing and seeing more of him. In fact, you already see him quite a bit. If you are on our Aviation Photography Facebook group, he's pretty active on there. Now, Sluggo and I continued for almost another hour covering listener questions and other topics like refueling the SR-71, the crew size of the KC-135. By the way, it's a lot less than I expected, especially after listening to the AC-130 episode some time ago. Let's see. We talked about the massive refueling plan during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We even touched on stealth refueling coming up. So... Go check that out on Patreon if you're so inclined. That's where exclusive content like this lives, and it's featured there quite frequently. So go to patreon.com, search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and you can enjoy the exclusive content while helping support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, we want to thank our new Patreon strike leads, Jeanette Benoit, Daniel Cannon, Wesley Quinlan, and Nicholas Tierney. This is the part in the show where I always like to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, I listened to the part one that I recorded a little bit ago and noticed my peas were popping quite a bit, so if that's still happening, I apologize. Hopefully our producer, Bernie, from the Muscle Car Plays podcast can help fix that up a little bit, but... you just never know what you're going to get on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Part of the reason is because I take my equipment with me when I go places and have to do the best in hotel rooms like this one in Atlanta, Georgia. So I know you appreciate what we try to do. And I know I appreciate your forgiveness for when our audio is not quite as great as it could be. Well, let's see, man, we have been churning out three episodes a month this entire year, even with some bonus episodes, and we've not yet taken a break. So guess what? We're going to take a break, take a week off next week, right around the Independence Day weekend here in North America. But don't worry, we have an intermission show lined up for you. And we're going to probably do something a little different in July. We'll announce more of that coming up. But don't worry, we're going to take a break, but we'll still have something for you to get your Fighter Pilot Podcast fix. So then, that'll do it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be well, be kind, be good to each other, make each day a masterpiece, and we'll see you back here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long.
3: You've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by BVR productions. Got a question for the show, send an email to questions at fighter podcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at eight seven seven mach one Oh one. That's eight seven seven six two two Be sure to check out our website at fighter pilot com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive fighter pilot podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.
1: Hello, this is
4: uh, Kevin calling from Brampton, Ontario in Canada. I'm a new listener to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and I must say that I am very pleasantly surprised with what I have come across. I happened to stumble across your MiG-21 episode in my Google News Feed, and I found it very informative, entertaining, and just, just wow. Like, uh, never thought I'd ever get to hear a naval uh, fighter pilot speaking with an ex-Indian air commodore. So, just gotta say great job and have a good one and uh keep up the good work thanks very much bye
0: To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.